Good morning, everybody. Hopefully everyone's doing well today. Um, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Acts. And uh, if you uh, haven't been here, we've been working our way at a fast pace because we're trying to get through the whole New Testament in five years, which is a chore. And so to do that, we're doing one chapter every week, which is a chore. And so we're, we're having to move along quite quickly to do some of these chapters. Um, but we're just watching in the book of Acts as the gospel has spread from Jerusalem uh, to Judea to Samaria, and now it's starting to spread beyond uh, to these various parts of the world, uh, specifically through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to continue to see how that worked out historically, and then kind of uh, try to think for ourselves how we can be involved in that today. Uh, When we do approach the scriptures, we want to ask ourselves two questions. Number one, what is God saying to me in the word? Uh, In other words, uh, I'm not just here just for an educational moment. Uh, I'm sure you guys got plenty of education in your life, but let's go beyond our educational moment and ask ourselves, if this is the word of God and it's the Holy Spirit of God who's interacting with us as we go through the word, is there some place he wants to lead me? Are there things that specifically speak to me? Uh, in the Word. So asking that for yourself will help you become a a good listener of sermons. Uh, And then really the next step of that, once you know what that is, what am I going to do about it? If if I feel like God's led me to do X, Y, or Z, what plans do I need to make to make sure I do X, Y, Z to hold me accountable to those things? So uh, that's what we're going to see today. Um, Hopefully uh, you guys have already connected with this idea, though, that uh, ultimately all that was happening with the spread of the gospel was empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're seeing the Holy Spirit uh, empower and direct different people to go to different places at different times. Uh, in other words, this is all according to God's plan. This was not some accidental thing where the gospel, oh, it just went viral. I don't know what happened. We can't explain it. No, this was specifically the empowerment of God for specific people at a specific time so that the good news of Jesus Christ could get to the whole world. And of course, uh, from our perspective, it worked pretty well because 2,000 years later, we're still here in all the way over in Wyoming. We get the gospel. We get to know about the good news of Jesus Christ. So we're excited about that. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can go ahead and raise your hand and someone can bring one to you or just bring it up on your phone. You could probably find it there as well. But uh, some options there for you. Um, All right, Acts chapter 11. Here we go. Verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Well, you can almost hear kind of the disgust coming out of their mouth as they say these things. Uh, It's an awkward thing to us. We don't talk about this. This isn't something that would be normal for us. But understanding the Jewish perspective of those initial believers, they would not have uh, organized or cooperated in any way with those who were Gentiles. A Gentile would be anybody who was not Jewish. And as we saw in the last chapter, uh, Peter was out preaching and he ended up sharing the gospel uh, with Cornelius and his household. These guys were not Jewish in any way, uh, and yet they received the Holy Spirit of God. Well, when Peter gets back, I told you last week, he's going to have to answer for this, right? When he gets back to Jerusalem, the news of this has already gotten to Jerusalem. And so some of those new believers who had been Jewish previously are concerned, why would he even do this? Why are you doing this? Because according to their understanding of God's law, that made them unclean. Uh, To be hanging out and eating a meal with somebody who is 
unclean themselves makes you unclean, at least in a spiritual sense. So that's the real struggle that the church was having there. And it's going to be kind of an ongoing struggle that you're going to see throughout most of the New Testament where constantly this issue comes up because of the Jewish nature of the beginning of the gospel message. It's a problem that Jesus had as well. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, you might recall the Pharisees surrounded Jesus and they questioned him, why are you and your disciples eating with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, it was just this, this ongoing struggle that those who were Jewish did not quite understand the mission of God and the message of God was intended to go beyond the walls or beyond the, the nation of Israel. The gospel was always intended to be for the world, going back all the way to the covenant made with Abraham, that in your seed, the world would be blessed. It wasn't just for one select group of people. The gospel, the good news, was always intended for everyone. And you saw even in last chapter, in Acts chapter 10, uh, when Peter did get to the house of Cornelius, in verse 28, he said this, he said, uh, you know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. And so that's really at the heart of this issue, that they were still struggling with this at the beginning of the church. This is something that the Holy Spirit, though, is doing. And so Peter's going to make an argument now, really just by retelling the story of how he got to sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. He's just going to retell that story, which we heard three times in the previous chapter, by the way. Uh, but he's going to tell it again. We're going to get it a fourth time today. Uh, he's going to retell that story. But what you'll notice as he goes through it He's making clear who the source of this gospel message to the Gentiles were. And so you'll see that all throughout here. So let's look now in verse 4. It says, Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and, were, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, "'Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here.'" And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift he gave us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way. So it's just a retelling of what happened, but I want you to look at the highlights here, uh, understand who's directing this story, who's directing the order of events. First of all, Peter sees a vision 
This wasn't Peter's idea. He saw a vision, and the vision is the one who told him that nothing is unholy or unclean anymore. And he makes mention here that he tried to argue with this voice, but this voice in verse 9 was a voice from heaven. He's trying to make it very clear, hey guys, this isn't my fault. God made me do it. It was, it was, it was, there was this vision, and then God said I could do these things. And then as he's having this moment, as soon as that vision is gone, immediately there's a knock at the door. There's three men at the house. And when that happens, now the Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, go with them, these Gentiles, without misgivings. In other words, I was just doing what I was told. (laughs) I saw it in a vision. The Lord spoke to me from heaven, and now the Holy Spirit is telling me, speaking to me, I must go with these men. So I go with these men, and when I get there, it just happens to be Cornelius, the centurion's house. And yes, he happens to be a Gentile. But he saw an angel, and the angel told him to come find me and to preach the gospel to him. So again, you can see he's making clear, Peter didn't come up with this doctrinal idea of let's go preach to the Gentiles. Peter is just responding to everything that he saw. But as you might recall last week, while he's preaching the story of the gospel, he's proclaiming to them the good news about Jesus Christ. In the middle of that, and here's his last line in verse 43, before things get crazy, uh, of the previous chapter, it says, uh, through his name, speaking of Jesus, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And then at that moment, while Peter was still speaking in verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all of those who were listening to the message. And so he just relays that back to the apostles and to the brethren in Jerusalem who were upset about this. Verse 15, back in chapter 11, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And then he takes it a step further. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so here in verse 16, he now even quotes Jesus. So he's got God the Father, he's got the Holy Spirit, and he's got Jesus. He's got the trifecta of witnesses here as to why he was able to do this, this quote of Jesus from Acts chapter 1. And he's showing how in that moment when he proclaimed the forgiveness of sins for anyone who believes, the Holy Spirit fell on them. And he says, and you know, I don't know a whole lot about how this worked out, but he said it was just like he fell on us at the beginning, which is intended, I think, to make them think about the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell on them and they began to speak in other tongues and there was this little flicker of flame above their head. It was this very obvious thing that the Spirit was there active and working in their life. And he says in the same sense in chapter 11 that they began speaking in tongues and exclaiming or praising God, exalting God. And he's saying it's the same thing that happened to us when the Spirit fell on us. Well, if God the Father has the Holy Spirit land on these Gentiles who we consider unclean at the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do you want me to do about it? I wasn't going to get in God's way. That's good. That's good, right? It's a pretty good rule of thumb. If God's going one direction and you decide to go against that direction, it's probably not going to work out for you, right? 
pretty good rule of thumb. So he decides to follow this rule of thumb. So the only response left, he, he's, he's put this in a pretty good place for them in verse 18. The only response they could really bring in this is, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Uh, this is an important moment, a pivotal moment in the history of the church. Uh, at this point, we're taking what we already knew about God, that he intended to be not just the God of one little nation. He was always the God of the whole world because he created the world and he created everyone in it. So we already knew that about who God was. We could see it and trace it through the Old Testament. You can see it in the laws and the prophets in the Psalms, just repeatedly this idea that it was intended that anybody could come to him, that everybody should know about him and that all should praise him. But at this point, what we're actually seeing now in this moment, the people of God, particularly the Christian believers of God, are recognizing that the whole world has been approved to enter into the church, to be a part of the body of Christ. Now, there's still some stuff for them to sort out, right? They still kind of have to solve some things, and we'll see that in Acts chapter 15. They're going to have a big meeting about this. If you've been around a church, there's nothing more exciting to people in charge than let's have a big meeting about this, right? So this is what's going to happen. They're going to have this situation where all these people who were formerly Jewish had to follow all these kind of Jewish traditions and laws, are now having to be in fellowship in the same church with a bunch of people who have no Jewish background. They don't understand any of the traditions, any of the laws. And so it's going to cause some friction and some conflict. Uh, not unlike, by the way, what happens in any church in any given time in history. There are certain traditions that come over generationally that sometimes come in conflict with the way younger generations handle themselves, and you start to see these conflicts. Uh, the one that's most obvious, I think, in most churches might be worship, for instance. And so this group of people was like, well, this was the songs we sang. And this new group said, like, we wrote some new songs. And now you have this conflict you have to have a big meeting about it, right? What are we going to do? You got to decide how are we going to handle this? That's what they had to do. They had to have a meeting about it. That's what they're going to do in Acts chapter 15. So we'll get all that solved later. But just know in this moment now, it's this approval of God now connected to the approval of the apostles and the other brethren in the original church there in Jerusalem. Another fascinating thing in verse 18, I just want to point out to you. Uh, in verse 18, it says, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now think about that wording. God has granted repentance. When we think of repentance, repentance means to turn away from your sins and to turn towards God, to turn away from those things. We think of it in terms of our authority to do that. And we kind of feel like, look at me, I've repented, I've done something great, which is true. It is great when we repent, when we turn away from our sins, that's great. But we don't want to think that we're the sole source of that repentance. Yes, I think repentance comes as an act of our own will. I think we choose to repent. But I also think God, on his part, grants repentance to people. He puts people in the position. He sets them in the way that they can come to repentance. And so, as always, I always think it's the sovereignty of God working with the will of man. And those two things together have these kind of perfect moments. And this isn't, by the way, the only place it says that. It's not just here in verse 18. Uh, we saw it back in Acts chapter 5, verse 31. 
Paul will quote it as well, a similar concept in 2 Timothy chapter 2.25. It's a repentance that was granted to us by God. Now, the personal impact of that, number one, is if you're a repentant person, you can praise God for that repentance. You can praise God because he granted it to you. Uh, the other part of that that I think is important is sometimes as believers, we have people we love, friends and family members, who are going the wrong direction in everything. And they're making difficult choice after difficult, or maybe I should just say bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, pursuing all the wrong things. And we're watching their life as like a downward spiral. It's like circling the drain. It's like everything they do is so wrong. And we're just crying out like, what's wrong with you? Change something, do something different. I would say add to your plea that they would make a change, a prayer that God would grant them repentance. That it's not just that we're trying to convince them to change, but we would call on the God of the universe to come alongside them and bring them to repentance. That those two things would be working together in the life of those people who we really see are just struggling in this world. And I think that is something that applies to all of us, because I think we all have those people in our life who we're just watching. It's almost like they've hit the self-destruct button. It just seems like everything they do just seems to be the wrong thing. And it can be frustrating to not be able to just take them. You just want to shake them, right? Like, hello, wake up. What are you doing? But to add to that idea just that I'm bringing God into this and saying, God, he's not responding. She's not responding. Lord, would you respond? Would you grant them repentance? Invite God into that circumstance. And I know you guys have probably done that as well, but it's just a little bit of a changing of your understanding of where the source of that repentance is, uh, to, to put more of that on God himself, to trust him for more of those things. Well, we'll pick it up here in verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that happened in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Uh, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number believed, a uh, number who believed, turned to the Lord." So now the gospel is again spreading. That's what we're seeing in the book of Acts. It's going Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, now to the ends of the earth. Uh, but what's happening is what has just been approved now in Jerusalem, that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, was actually already happening supernaturally outside of Jerusalem. But we had to get these two things lined up, where although the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ outside Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem had to be supportive of that because they were seen as the leaders of the whole church. So these two things are starting to line up, and we're reminded in verse 19 why the Jews left Jerusalem. They left because of persecution. There was a guy by the name of Stephen. You might recall Stephen in Acts chapter 8, the first four verses there. Stephen gets put to death because he's proclaiming Jesus Christ, the Jews kill him, which then scared a bunch of Christians, Jews, in Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so they all left town for their protection. But what did they take with them everywhere they went? They took the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so that gospel is spreading because of the persecution the gospel spreads. In this case, it's reminding us that that's still happening and that's still going on. Now, let me give you just a little bit of a time frame here because, I, because the scripture doesn't list out dates, it sometimes gets confusing. In Acts chapter 9, uh, the events that we saw there, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Acts chapter uh, 8 and 9, the events that we saw there were happening um, in, oops, now I've lost my note to myself. Chapter 9 happened in A.D. 34. This is when um, Paul came to salvation. So about four years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul comes to salvation. In Acts chapter 9 and 10, by the time we get to Acts chapter 11, we find ourselves at 32 A.D. This is about eight years have passed in those few chapters. So those that in 39 or 30, 34 A.D. left town and began proclaiming the gospel, they've been doing that for eight years now, and it's reached up to Antioch. So let me just draw you a visual map in your brain. Israel... Lebanon, that's what it calls Phoenicia here. Cyprus is this little, uh, little uh, island there in the middle. And then if you go up, you get to Antioch, which is Syria. So modern day Lebanon and Syria are now receiving the gospel. Antioch was the capital city. It was not a, a great place. Uh, they had a lot of um, uh, uh, idol worship. Uh, but it wasn't just that it was idol worship. It was that uh, in order to worship idols in Antioch, they had this whole system of prostitution where the best way that you could worship their false gods was through prostitution. It was a whole thing. Uh, we're not interested in how they worship, though. Let's go back to how we worship, right? Um, uh, just, just understand that when they went and preached the gospel there, uh, it, was, it was an icky culture. <laughs> Even by our standards, it was an icky culture. <laughs> They went and they preached the gospel there, and these people who were not Jewish began receiving. In fact, it says a large number of them believed because, and again, we're looking at the source of this, the hand of the Lord was with them. This wasn't some marketing gimmick. This wasn't some great idea. This was the hand of God, in verse 21, leading this charge. Now, what do you do when you have a bunch of Gentile, former pagans who've just come to faith in Jesus Christ, and you happen to be over the church in, in the whole world. You're in Jerusalem, and you just hear about this. You're like, what are we going to do with all of these interesting people who just came to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, we've already determined that it's okay for them to come to faith. Now we've got to send help so that they can grow in their faith. So look here in verse 22. The news about them reached the ears, uh, man. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And then he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, uh, be, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So you have to, you have to send somebody there to now take care of these folks, to, to raise them up, to teach them, and to train them to be believers in Jesus Christ, to be followers in Jesus Christ. So the church in Jerusalem, led by the apostles, thought to themselves, who would be a good guy to send? 
Well, they decided to send somebody that we know as Barnabas, but Barnabas wasn't his real name. Uh, His real name was Joseph, but he became known as Barnabas to the apostles because Barnabas means son of encouragement. So here we have this son of encouragement, Barnabas, and they thought, who better to send to the church there than Barnabas? And Barnabas already has a history of this. You remember in Acts chapter 4, Barnabas was the one who started selling off his own property to care for the needs of people who were needy in the church. What an encouragement that was. And then when Saul, who becomes the apostle Paul, who was the one who was involved in the martyrdom of Stephen, when he comes to salvation, all the Jews are just like, look, this dude was just arresting and killing people. Why did you invite him to church? Barnabas decides, I'm going to hang out with this Saul guy. I'm going to make introductions. I'm going to introduce him to the apostles. So he constantly has this kind of ministry of encouragement. So he's sent now up to Antioch, or it'll say down here because the way they saw things is anything outside of Jerusalem was down. Um, But they would go to Antioch. Barnabas is going to go to Antioch. He's going to go up now to Syria, and he's going to have this job of encouraging them. Now, what else do we know about him that is interesting in all of this? He was from Cyprus. He was a Cyprian man, and he was a Levite. So he's of the tribe of Levi, which meant he was a priest to the Jews, that he he was a, a priest of the people. He served the people in the temple because he was a Levite, which meant he knew the Old Testament law well. He has the gift of encouragement, apparently. So you add encouragement to that. He knows the word. He knows how to encourage people. He's from Cyprus, and you might recall that it was men from Cyprus who proclaimed the gospel in Antioch. And so he has a nationality comfort there. Antioch and Cyprus actually not that far apart. It's just right across the bay there. So you have kind of this great connection. Barnabas is just the right guy for the job. On top of that, it says this about Barnabas. Uh, It says uh, that he was a man who was full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and he was a good man. So now you've got a guy who was well-versed in the Word. He was a natural encourager. He had a local connection, and he was just a, a good man, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. He's the right man for the job. And so he's going to go there to encourage them, uh, specifically in the gospel, But I want you to see in verse 23 what his version of encouragement was. He says, He encouraged them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. In other words, don't make your faith in Jesus Christ just kind of this temporary moment, this highlight of your life. There was this one time where I was really on fire for my faith. I don't really do that stuff anymore, but man, it was cool back in the day. He's saying, let's not do that. He's telling these guys, these new guys, and, and they need to hear this, right? Because they're surrounded by a culture that does not match their newfound faith, which might sound somewhat familiar to us. When we look at our culture anymore, our faith is no longer acceptable to the world for a number of reasons, because of the way we we believe the scriptures, what the scriptures teach about different things. But just in general, I would say it this way, the world has a problem with anybody that's an authority. It's always been that way. And as Christians, we proclaim that God is the authority and he gets to tell us what to do. And that does not make the world very happy. 
So there's always going to be just like this, this problem where when people come to faith in Jesus Christ, their old friends, maybe their family, maybe just the world around them, they're, not, they're going to struggle with this. They're going to need somebody to come alongside them. And that's why we talked about this a few uh, weeks back when we were covering Barnabas and Saul. Like, you're going to see people come to faith. They need people like you beside them to encourage them to keep it up, to not walk away. And sometimes we're like, yeah, we got him to the finish line. He's a believer now. Whew, I'm done. Move on to the next one to conquer. I know you, you got to stay with these folks. You got to continually encourage them and build them up in the faith. This was Barnabas's habit. Habit. You're going to see him do it as well in chapter 13 when he goes to a certain area. He's going to do the same thing. What is he going to do there? He's going to encourage them to hold strong to the faith. Chapter 14, verse 22, the exact same thing. He goes to another area, and what does he encourage them? Stand strong in the faith. That's what he wants them to do. He wants to encourage them to stand strong in the faith. So my encouragement to you is number one: stand strong in the faith. Don't make your faith life a roller coaster. You know, some people are always looking for that spiritual high. And then after that spiritual high, it's kind of like, oh, nothing cool's happening anymore. And then they just kind of like, meh, I'll get back to that Christianity thing somewhere. I'm saying, don't make your life a spiritual high or a spiritual low. Just consistently pursue Jesus Christ with your life. Whether there's a spiritual high or a spiritual low, pursue him in all things. This is actually my personal spiritual goal for me personally. I want to be known as somebody that just had a steady, consistent faith. That's it. I just want to be known as somebody that had a steady, consistent faith. And yes, there's going to be highs, and yes, there's going to be lows. But my faith in Jesus Christ will remain the same, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God. It's the same power working in him and through him and working in my life. And so all I want to do is just trust in him consistently and ignore my circumstances. My circumstances say nothing about whether God's real or not. Circumstances are just that. They're just circumstances. It's just the pot you're boiling in, right? It's just the culture you're in. That's what it is. God is above those things. He's beyond those things. He's God. And so I've just gotten in the habit, and I remind myself of this quite often, I'm just always going to give God the benefit of the doubt. So if I look around and things aren't going the way I want them to go, and I'm struggling in the hardship, and, and you know, I, I try not to get into this very much, but I've had a few moments in my life that haven't been great. Maybe you've had the same thing. In those moments, it gave me great peace to just give God the benefit of the doubt. Look, in this moment, I don't have a clue what you're doing, God, but I'm just going to trust that you do. In this moment, I'm pretty miserable about my circumstances, but that's not a reflection on your character, God. It's a reflection on this world. It might even be a reflection on my character. It's not a reflection on who he is. I'm just going to give him the benefit of the doubt, and in my life, and maybe in yours, he's earned that. He's just earned it. We were at a uh, funeral a couple months back. A uh, pastor in Longmont, Colorado. Um, wrong city. Windsor, Colorado. Thank you, Sheila. And uh, tough situation. Um, so this pastor was somebody that we knew. And a few years ago, uh, one of his sons had committed suicide. And so his family was going through a lot of turmoil. 
And then this pastor and his wife earlier this year were in a car accident and they both died. And so now his remaining son comes up, one of his remaining sons come up to speak at the funeral. And I'm already just thinking to myself, this is not going to go well. Like, this is going to be hard. How, how's he going to do that? And just think about this young man who's just had first a brother and now both of his parents die. And he said, when my brother died, my mom would say to me all the time, even if you don't feel it today, even if your faith just doesn't have that feeling to it anymore, rely on what you already know. God is true and God is good, even when your circumstances aren't. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be encouraged to remain true to the Lord. He's true even if our circumstances are bad. He loves us even when we're suffering. He's provided eternity for us, forgiveness of sins, even if everything else around us is falling apart. In fact, it's like saying, because I'm dying in a car accident or because I'm, I'm dying in a plane, my plane's on the way down, the only thing I have left to hold on to is my parachute, but I'm so frustrated, I'm going to throw my parachute out too. That's what people do with their faith. I'm just so frustrated by my circumstances, I'm just throwing it all out. No, your plane's going down. You're holding the parachute. Put that baby on. And let it gently bring you to where it's promised to take you. Just trust in God. Don't give up on Him. Well, anyway, they're going to continue to teach this church there for a good year. And by they, uh, I, I might have forgot to point out that Barnabas doesn't just hang out in Antioch. He takes a little trip up to Turkey to the city of Tarsus which is where the Apostle Paul has been basing his ministry for the last eight years. Now, you might recall why Paul had to go to Tarsus. When he came to faith in Jesus Christ in Jerusalem eight years before this, the Jerusalem church was not too happy about it. So they tried to kill him just like he was trying to kill Christians before. So they had to sneak him out of town and take him all the way up to Tarsus. And Barnabas thinks to himself, you know, I know a guy that lives around here. A guy that's super smart, knows the word, a guy that could work alongside me and help minister in this and begin to see this partnership of the gospel that Barnabas and Saul or Paul are going to have. They're going to begin to proclaim the gospel together, and it's going to start here, but it's going to continue on throughout their ministry. Um, for the most part, you're going to see oftentimes wherever Barnabas is, Paul is. Wherever Paul is, Barnabas is. An interesting change is going to happen, though. For the next few chapters, it's always going to be Barnabas and Paul. And then you're going to start to see a change where it's Paul and Barnabas. Paul becomes more of the leader of the group. But at this point, they're in Antioch. They come together, and it's going to be this match made in heaven where these guys are going to work together to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Now, why would he choose Paul? Well, you might recall when Paul... Boy, that rhymed accidentally. You might recall when Paul first came to faith, God told him that he was going to proclaim the gospel to kings and to Gentiles. And so here we are ministering to Gentiles. Barnabas says... This is the guy that God chose for it. And so he brings in Paul so they can minister there. Another interesting thing that happens there in Antioch is that they were first called Christians there. 
It was the city of Antioch that gave them the name Christians. And there's a considerable debate about this, actually, whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, In general, it just means a follower of Jesus Christ or little Christ, something along those lines. It has kind of this diminutive effect that you're not the head guy, but you're kind of following this group. And some historians believe that it was an insult, that the, Antioch, uh, the, the people in Antioch were just like, look at all those little Christs running around town. Bunch of little Jesuses just trying to be just like their daddy. Just like a mocking type tone. But I think eventually the Christians just said, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> that's not too bad. We'll take it. Now, it only comes up three times in Scripture here. Uh, You'll see it later in Acts chapter 26, and then Peter will bring it up in 1 Peter. And it's really in that uh, next two sections where you can see kind of has a a little bit of a derogatory term to it. It has kind of a derogatory name, but believers just kind of took it on. And you're like, yeah, that's right. We follow Jesus Christ, and we're just trying to be like him. That's who we are. And now you've seen kind of this this variety of names there. They were believers. They were followers. They were disciples. They were the holy ones, the family of God, the brothers and sisters of Christ, like all of these beautiful names. But what has stuck historically seems to be this one. We're Christians. We're just followers of Jesus Christ. We're just little Christians, little Christs. That's it. It's just kind of stuck since that time forward. Well, we're going to finish up this chapter with an interesting prophecy that's going to show uh, how now this new Gentile group of churches is going to begin to turn tables now, and instead of being ministered to by the Jews, they'll minister to the Jewish church. So look at this in verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over all the world. And This took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So now we have uh, in Antioch, Saul and Barnabas are ministering. Um, Prophets from Jerusalem come to town, one in particular named Agabus. Uh, The only reason Agabus is named here, by the way, is this is the same prophet uh, that will later in Acts chapter 21 prophesy about the death of Paul. He's going to be the prophet, so he's going to get mentioned here by name. He's going to have a double role in Paul's life. But this prophet and this group of prophets come to town, uh, and the Holy Spirit reveals to them that there's going to be a famine all over the world. And then Luke just kind of puts this little antidote in there. By the way, this happened during the reign of Claudius. This is helpful for us, by the way, because we think of time and it's very, it has to have a timeline. You have dates and all this kind of stuff. You can see in the way they handled it, it was just more, think about things that were happening historically at that time. So he tells us this was during the reign of Claudius, which means we can narrow this down from 41 to 54 AD. Then you can go read the historical documents and see, although there were a number of smaller famines during the time of Claudius, it seems like the larger one was in 46 AD. And so these guys in 42 AD prophesied that there would be this famine And so what does the church in Antioch do? They go, oh no. If there's a famine in the land, what will happen to the mother church? (laughs) To the church in Jerusalem? The believers there? 
If there's a famine, they might have need. And so they make this decision to set aside a portion of their money according to what they had available. It says in verse 29, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means. And they made a decision. We're just going to start saving up so that we can make sure during this time of famine, the church in Jerusalem is cared for. Do you see the flip that happened there? Now look, it wasn't 20 verses ago, the church in Jerusalem was like, you're eating with Gentiles? But by the end of the chapter, the Gentiles are providing food for the church in Jerusalem. This is what the gospel does, by the way. It turns enemies into friends. It turns enemies into family. And you start to see this variety of different people that raise up from different locations and different mindsets and different cultures and different backgrounds. And they start to meld together into one and they begin to care for one another. That's the true beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of it. Now, I know we look around the room today and we're like, well, I don't know. We all look like pretty decent people. I know some of your backstories, right? You weren't all pretty decent people at one time. Some of you have done some stuff, and there's reasons that people in this church would be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know why that guy's here. He's here for the same reason we are. We were forgiven by Jesus Christ, and now we come together as a church. And this, by the way, is the reason we pray for other churches every Sunday. Because we don't see this as like, this is this one church and we're going to take the world. This church is going to be the one to do it, man. No, we're part of the greater body of Jesus Christ. And we want to see the gospel message go out everywhere. I don't care who proclaims it. Any of the churches should be proclaiming it. I want the city of Cheyenne to know that Jesus Christ loves them. I want the city to know that. And that means we have to activate all the disciples everywhere to proclaim that gospel message. We work together because we are together. But it's a, it's a beautiful picture there as the Gentiles who formerly were considered unclean and unworthy even to be eaten with. You wouldn't even have them over for your to dinner. You, you wouldn't want to defile your home by having them over. Those people are now providing for the church there in Jerusalem. And then one last interesting thing that happens there. Oh, by the way, you're going to see this throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul as he visits these various Gentile communities. He's going to start a church there, and he's going to say, oh, by the way, we heard there's a famine coming, and we want to provide for Jerusalem. We want to make sure that they have provision, that they have food. And so you'll see that kind of dotted throughout the writings of the Apostle Paul. But uh, one last interesting thing that happens in verse 30, it says this, uh, they sent this in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. In other words, No longer are we looking at the church of Jerusalem as being under the apostles. Now that church, like all churches, is organized in this scriptural way now where you have elders who are ministering and overseeing the body of Christ. That's kind of the picture that we're seeing here. You're seeing, again, this maturing, this transition point in the church, which is important because um, every church by nature will have a personality crisis if you think that only one person could ever be your leader. If you just think to yourself, well, if that guy's gone, we're just in trouble. We know from experience as a church that's not the case. We know it from experience. 
We've had a pastor who was dynamic, who was an amazing pastor, and he just left one day. He was just gone. And then you all got stuck with the youth guy. (laughs) And yet it still works. Now, why is that? Is that because the youth guy is amazing? Not so much. It's because there's always leaders around the church. And when one person or personality leaves, those leaders continue to lead. And they might select somebody else to lead. They probably will, right? Those elders hold the church together generationally. We keep bringing in those folks for that purpose. It's it's a powerful thing. One of the things that has been weird to me because I know who I am and who I was when I became the pastor. It's weird to me that now people will say things to me like, oh, this church would fall apart if you were gone. Like, meh, (laughs) probably not. You'd be all right. I truly believe at any moment God could just send a bus to run me over. You know what you guys would do next Sunday? Another pastor would probably pick up their Bible because mine got destroyed by a bus, but <laughs> they'd be like, Pastor Sean left it off in chapter, 12, chapter 11 last week. We'll pick it up in chapter 12. And they just keep going because it's the message that's important. So you got to have these types of leaders that have this generational idea of how things should go. Anyway, we've come to the end of the chapter. I, I just want to encourage you guys. This is your homework. It's the same homework every single week. Never changes. But uh, I just want you to have an, a conversation about Acts chapter 11 with somebody this week. You can use it to share the gospel with them. You can use it to encourage them in the faith. There could have been something in there that was specifically you're like, man, this is something I didn't know. Did you know this? And you just have a conversation. It leads to a very loose, but I think powerful form of discipleship. When you begin to speak about the things that you're learning, you kind of become the teacher. The other thing I would say is this. um, If you have kids in the children's ministry, they got Acts chapter 11 today. So parents are always like, oh, I don't know how to train up my children. I don't know what to do about teaching them the things of God. Well, they heard the same thing you did today. Just have a conversation with them about it. And if they ask questions that you can't answer, you just bring those questions to church next Sunday. You call the church office and say, my kid asked a question. I got no idea what to say to this guy. Get used to it. I'm the pastor. It happens to me all the time. (laughs) We'll do the research. We'll figure it out. We'll bring answers. This is how you get to disciple the people and care for the people around you. And then prepare yourself for next Sunday. Read Acts chapter 12. Every day this week, it's only 25 verses that just take you about two minutes. Uh, but as you do that, you're tilling the soil of your heart. The more you read the passage, the better my sermon gets the following week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful for a chance to be in your word today. I'm so thankful for each and every person that's here uh, hearing this. And I would pray, Lord, that uh, your spirit would be doing um, what he does. He, he comes alongside people who are unbelievers and he encourages them to repent. He takes those of us who are believers and strengthens us with your word. And Father, I would pray if there is any in our midst or those who we love who are struggling, Lord, would you grant them repentance that they would turn away from the things that are causing destruction in their life and turn themselves towards you. 
Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with one final song of worship as we always do, but I just want to remind you uh, that myself and the elders will be available. I did forget one announcement I was supposed to make, so sorry, I'm forgetful. I have it highlighted here with a star next to it, but uh, so this last week, we actually bought a piece of property on the south side, four acres, uh, that'll be for Calvary Chapel South. So they've been meeting for a number of years now. Now they have a piece of property 20 years from now, they'll have a building. I don't know how long that takes to get a building, but uh, that's, that's the plan. That's the idea. That's the permanence of the ministry over there. So 